All right. Well, I'm so glad y'all are back. I'm glad to see all of your faces again, and I'm excited. I'm excited to dive into Hosea. We're going to be going over chapters one through three tonight, and I think that this is a good section to jump into because it's kind of the part we're most familiar with, right? We're going to get to kind of ease into Hosea by kind of the most familiar part, the, the kind of the story of Hosea and Gomer. So I think this is a good place that we're going to be starting. Now, basically, these first three chapters, what they are is they're going to give us a summary of Hosea's entire message, okay? He's going to elaborate on his whole message throughout the rest of the book and all of the other chapters, but chapters one through three kind of serve as a summary of his whole message, and we're going to hear that summary twice and in two different forms, Okay. This is something that we see a lot in the Bible when something is told to us in two different ways, two different forms, and it's so that it can really drive home. So what this is going to look like in Hosea's 1 through 3 is that we hear the story one time as in story form. It's the story of Hosea and his life. That's chapters 1 and 3. Now right there inserted into the middle of that, we're going to hear the story again or the whole message again in a poem. Okay, So chapter 2 is kind of a poem that tells the whole message of Hose, that Hosea brings, and then it's bookended by part one and part two of Hosea's story. Okay, so that's kind of what we're looking at tonight, the format that should help kind of frame it for us as we go in. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Hosea chapter one. I'm gonna go ahead and just read all of chapter one because again, the, the format of this is a story, and so the best way to kind of digest a story is just to read it. So I'm gonna read chapter one, and then we're gonna kind of break it apart bit by bit, all right? <clears throat> this should hopefully help us to you know, kind of calm our minds a little bit. All right. The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Side note, this Jeroboam is not the same Jeroboam as the one who made the golden calf. This is like Jeroboam II. In case you're confused because the dates don't line up, that's why. I just had to make sure that that wasn't confusing. Okay, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Loruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I should ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Loruhamah, she conceived again and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet... The number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about that in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Okay, there's a lot of things in this chapter that we want to kind of talk through, but we're going to start with kind of talking through the names, okay? There's a lot of symbolism in the names in this chapter, and I had you kind of do a lot of this in your homework, so this shouldn't really be super new to you, um, but we're going to talk starting through Hosea with all the meanings of all these names, okay? So you guys probably know that what does Hosea mean? Throw it out there. 
Salvation, yes, it means salvation, or it means he has rescued or he, he has delivered. Um, there was one um, scholar who's kind of deep-dived into the language, and he kind of said that names, even though they would have maybe like a short you know, translation, they really kind of embody a bigger message of what the culture at that time would have seen this name as kind of symbolizing maybe something a little bit bigger. And so he kind of said that the full meaning of this name is the Lord has rescued or delivered us, okay? So that's kind of what... Israel would have heard by the name Hosea is the Lord has rescued or delivered us, which is fitting for Hosea, right? Because that's kind of, he's there to preach that message and he's there to point them back to that truth, okay? Now, Hosea's dad is named Beery. A lot of people say Beery, his name, it's, it means um, my well. And some people say that's really not significant. He's just there to differentiate Hosea from some of the other Hoseas in the Bible so that we know which Hosea this is. But the same scholar who's kind of deep-dived the language, he said that really kind of the more broad like, idea that this message is supposed to embody is Yahweh is my wellspring, okay? So it's kind of this idea that God is my wellspring. God is like the source of really li- all of life, you know? And so I think it's kind of fitting that we see these two names that embody um, just d- devotion to the Lord. I don't know Beery. I don't know if he really lived that out, but his name makes us think he did. So we kind of see that in Hosea and Beery. Now let's contrast that with Gomer and Diblium, okay? Who could find, who knows Diblium's name, what that one means? Anybody want to throw it out? What was that? Fig cake, yeah. It means it was like um, like double layers of grape cake is one thing that it was said, or like fig cake. It's kind of, yeah, this whole idea of, these um, kind of delicacies. It wasn't something that you would have eaten every day, and it kind of had certain connotations. It kind of had some sexual connotations, this did, and this wasn't just, you know, mine says grape cake. I'm sure there's lots of different ones, but it's actually double layers of grape cake. So it kind of lends itself to this idea of completely given up to sensuality, okay? That's kind of what that name implies, all right? Now, we're not supposed to see Diblium as somebody who's totally different standing out from the rest of Israel and like this person who just happens to be completely given over to sensuality. But she's really supposed to represent kind of Israel as a whole, okay? She's not really in contrast to Israel. This is a good representation of Israel itself. And then from that comes Gomer, which means completion. Now, again, this is something that some scholars say, there's not much meaning there. But I did see some scholars say, well, it's kind of this idea that Gomer represents the completion of the idolatry of Israel. It's kind of like Israel's idolatry had reached its full measure. It had become complete to the point that um, something had to happen. You know, God's judgment was going to have to come. So we kind of see a pretty big contrast when you kind of take you know, Hosea and Beery, and then Gomer and Diblium, they're pretty opposite, right? We kind of see a big, big contrast here. But yet, God tells Hosea, go and marry, go and take a wife of whoredom. And so he marries, you know, Gomer. So let's take a minute here, take a break from the names and ask, what does that mean, a wife of whoredom, all right? Um, You know, it seems straightforward when you first read it, but there's actually a lot of debate among scholars on what this actually means. So I'm going to tell you the different camps, and you can kind of decide for yourself which one you think fits your reading of it, okay? So on one end, there's the scholars who say, well, this means what it says. Like, he's supposed to go and marry an actual prostitute. Some people would say, well, not just a prostitute, but probably a temple prostitute. Like, a lot of the prostitutes were probably temple prostitutes. Now, that might sound weird if you're not familiar with the temple prostitutes. This is not something that was a God-ordained thing. This was one of the pagan worship things, okay? 
they were worshiping um, the Canaanite fertility god, Baal. And the way that you worshiped Baal, he was the one who was like the storm god, the fertility god. He would bring the rain that would cause the earth to be fertile, and he would also just bring prosperity through all of that. Now, the way that they thought that you would get Baal to do that involved sex. They kind of thought, well, that's what brings fertility, right? So we're going to go. There would be um, prostitutes at the temple. You would go. You would pay. You would you know, be with prostitutes, and then that would encourage Baal to bless the land with fertility. Super messed up, right? And this is what God's people were doing. And so there's a lot of people who look at this and say, okay, God was telling Hosea to marry one of these temple prostitutes. So that's the most literal, you know, interpretation. But a lot of scholars kind of think that's probably not actually what it means because there was an actual word for prostitute. There was an actual word for these temple prostitutes, and those words aren't what's used in the original text, okay? The word that's used here actually has more of the idea of a spirit of prostitution. So there's a lot of people who are like, okay, she wasn't an actual prostitute, at least not at this time, but she had a spirit of prostitution, okay? So this is the other camp. Now, even in this other camp, there's two different categories here. In this other camp, some scholars would say she had a spirit of prostitution, which means she was going to become a prostitute. She was going to start to be unfaithful. And then there's the people who would say, okay, the spirit of prostitution is more of just this idea of spiritual prostitution. Like she was, um, you know, a wife of whoredom the same way that any woman of Israel would be a wife of whoredom because they were all whoring after other gods. They were all prostituting themselves over other gods. So it's more of the spiritual sense, okay? So nobody really agrees here. There's a lot of different viewpoints. I don't really know, like, what I think. I kind of would lean maybe more towards the spiritual one. Um, But there's no evidence that Gomer was an actual adulteress or an actual prostitute, at least at this point, okay? So I'm going to let you decide for yourself what you think, um, because it's good. It's good for us to kind of wrestle through and kind of learn to have our own interpretations. Um, So it's hotly debated if she was unfaithful to Hosea. Even as we move forward in the chapter, people debate, okay, so is this chapter saying that she, like, had these kids with other men? Like, it doesn't really say that she bore them to Hosea all the time. Does that mean they had other fathers? But all of that is really speculation. There's really nothing in the chapter to indicate that she was unfaithful ever in chapter 1. I think people like to look for these clues, but really, whether you think that she was unfaithful or not, or a prostitute or not, like all of the scholars who are all over the spectrum here, they all kind of agree that that's not really the point of the chapter anyway. Like, that's not really what the chapter's about. We kind of go into Hosea thinking this is about his relationship with Gomer, but in chapter one, it's really not about his relationship with Gomer. The whole chapter, the whole meat of the message, what we're supposed to take away, all has to do with the meaning of the three children's names, okay? So it kind of doesn't really matter whether she was, you know, faithful or unfaithful because that's really not what the book is about, especially in chapter one. So we know that the important part is in the name, so let's start asking and going through what these names mean. Um, Because in this culture, names were um, kind of important. They always had significance. They usually were um, tied to something that was happening at the time of the birth. And they were almost always positive. Like, it would have been really shocking to have these kind of names that um, Hosea names his children, that God tells him to name his children. It would be kind of like um, some similar, you know, things in our culture. It would be like if I named my child Auschwitz, like Auschwitz, like from, you know, the war and everything, or if I said, oh, here's my daughter, her name is Rejected, like, it would be so shocking, right, but that's essentially what these names are, so they were designed for the purpose of when people would hear these names, it was another opportunity for Hosea then to say, to share his whole message, because these names were telling the story that God was kind of speaking through Hosea, right, 
So let's go through them one by one and ask what do these names mean. So first we have Jezreel. And if you did the homework, you'll know that this kind of has two different meanings. It can, one, mean God sows. And there's times in the book of Hosea that that's the meaning we're supposed to look at. But it also is the name of a city. It's kind of like how we have, like I said, Auschwitz before. Like when you say that word, you immediately don't think of, what's the culture like there? What are people? Like you know, you have a picture that involves death and like just horrible images come to your mind, right? That's what Jezreel would have been for Israel, okay? There was a a complete massacre happened at Jezreel. And so this word to them, it wasn't something that they would just think of the city. They would think of this idea of a massacre when they heard that name of a city, okay? So it it was completely synonymous with that for them. Um, So what happened, in case you're curious, at Jezreel, it was basically um, one of the previous kings, God, through one of the prophets, told this king to come and annihilate um, the city of Jezreel. And so... My translation says, I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Israel. But that's not really kind of what the original language lends itself to. It's worded a lot of different ways in a lot of translations. But this wasn't something that happened against God's will. This was something that God told him to do. So really, kind of um, when you look at the original language, it really lends itself more to it's not going to be long before I apply the bloodshed of Jezreel to the family of Jehu. So Jehu was one of their kings. The family of Jehu would be all of them because he was one of their kings. So what they would have heard with this name is like, okay, the same kind of massacre, the same complete annihilation that we did to the people of Jezreel, that's what God is saying he's about to do to us. Okay, that's heavy, right? And that's the message that the first child's name brings. That's pretty heavy. All right, then we have the second child. Loruhama, and that means no mercy or no compassion. And that's because God's mercy and compassion had just run out. It had run out for northern Israel. Okay, this shows kind of a shift in God's relationship with his people because up to this point, we see time and time again him having compassion on his people even when they were doing bad things, right? And so this shows a shift. Now he no longer has compassion on them. Something is changing here. And then finally, we have the third child, Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And this is the final statement that kind of seals the deal. This is the most drastic. It doesn't feel like it at first, but really what this signifies is a lot more drastic than those other two. Because this shows that the covenant is now void, all right? The covenant started with God saying he would be their, they would be his people and he would be their God. That was at the very beginning of the covenant. And now we come full circle to him saying, you are not my people. Okay, so we had the beginning of the covenant. You are my people, I'm your God. The end of the covenant, you are not my people. Okay, um, they hadn't treated him as their God for quite some time. And so now the covenant is void. They're no longer his people. Multiple commentators described this as divorce language. When you look at kind of the, you know, cultural language, this was the same language that you would use when you're talking about divorce. So God was basically bringing forth the terms of the covenant, um, is going to end, and all of the commentators, they kind of described it as God divorcing his people. Now, when I first read this, like, I was kind of surprised, as you guys might be too. It might be shocking to hear the word divorce describing an action that God did. That kind of goes against a lot of the things that we've, you know, been taught to believe about God. Um, So the first commentary I was reading, I read this, and he said God is divorcing his people. And I was like, I don't think I agree with you there. Like, I'm going to have to, you know, not agree with this guy. So then I read another commentary, and he said the same thing. And then I read another commentary, and she said the same thing. And every single commentary used that same language because it's clear from the original language that that is the type of language that's being used here, okay? Now, a lot of times we think 
of divorce is you're breaking a covenant, right? Because when we are married, to divorce somebody is like this, you're breaking a covenant. But that's not what's happening here because God's not breaking this covenant. Israel broke the covenant. Remember, this is a conditional covenant. God laid out the terms. Israel broke it. And now God is being faithful to the terms that he set because he was clear. If you break my covenant, then curses are going to come, okay? This can't go on this way. He waited 500 years to finally go ahead and bring out that kind of this judgment, the end of the covenant. So again, again, it brings up this feeling of us like, well, God wouldn't do that. God's not going to be, you know, God's not going to break a covenant. He didn't. Israel broke the covenant. God is being faithful to the terms that he laid out, okay? Now, divorce and marriage, it's a legal action, right? We go to court. um, There's a lot of things that happen legally for a divorce to take place. So it makes sense that we see a pattern all throughout Hosea that kind of is representing like mimicking a courtroom. We see a lot of evidence, a lot of judgment, and there's courtroom type language throughout the book. It's almost like God wants it to be known and to be clear, hey, there's there's no room to come back and say, this is unfair, God, how could you do this, okay? God is going to show through a very legal way, through like this representation of a courtroom, that this is a justified divorce, that this is something that he is justified in doing. Um, And so if we were to come back and say, well, that's not fair, God wouldn't do that. He can say, let me show you clearly, like there's no question here of why I'm doing this and why it's just. We kind of doubt court systems sometimes because we hear all these stories of things that happen unfairly in court or people wrongly convicted or, you know, judges who are corrupt or whatever. But God's courtroom is, is just and it is perfect, okay? So we can have security in knowing that God's judgments are just and there's no mistakes here, okay? So we can have faith and not question whether or not what God is doing to Israel here was fair or not. All right. That's a lot of heaviness, but this does not mean that God is abandoning his people forever. Because look at those last two verses of chapter 1, okay? This is the best part. We see immediately after this picture of divorce between God and his people, which seems so final, God is quick to give this picture of future hope, okay? So in verse 10, we see like all this other verses said the northern kingdom is going to be annihilated. But now we're told immediately after that that the number of their children would be like the sand of the sea, We were told before that they're no longer God's people. But here in these two verses, we're told that one day they are going to be called children of the living God. They were divided into two kingdoms. But we're told here that they're one day going to be united under one head, which we know is Jesus, right? Jezreel over here was known as a place of a bloody massacre. But then we hear it kind of redeemed here. And we know that people are going to be like resurrected from death. We're going to be going up from the land and great shall be the day of Jezreel. So we know that all of this is fulfilled in the work of Christ several hundred years after the Assyrian, um, the Assyrian invasion and everything. Um, but we see that these two verses, they reverse every element of judgment that Hosea preaches, and they fully point to Christ. So all of these judgments that seem so harsh and so final, they're not final, okay? They're all going to get reversed completely in the new covenant. All right, so that's kind of part one of Hosea's story. So now we're going to take a break from that and move to chapter two. We're taking a break from the story of what Hosea's message is, and we're going to see a poem. We're going to see um, kind of the whole story told to us in a different way. So we're kind of starting over again at the beginning here. Um, and the way chapter two reads out is it's kind of in three sections. Now, when you think of a courtroom, there's a pattern. You're going to, you're going to lay out some evidence, 
and then a judgment will come, okay? So that's going to kind of happen three. There's going to be three judgments here. I had you identify them in your homework. So we're going to look at the poem and kind of look at what happens in the first group of evidence and judgment and the second group and the third, okay? So the first one is that we're going to start by reading um, chapter 2, verses I think it's 1 through 6. So go ahead and you can read with me. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama, contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Okay, so we see here um, in this courtroom analogy that God is speaking to Israel. When I first read this, I got kind of confused because he's speaking to somebody and he says, tell your mother and tell your brothers and sisters. And I was like, okay, well, so is Israel the person he's speaking to? Is it the mother? Is it the brother and sisters? And it turns out it's all three, okay? Like all of it is Israel. If you ever want to know who is this in chapter two, it's probably Israel. So the way that this kind of plays out is that God is kind of speaking to like the individual Israelites. And he's saying, you know, like speak to your brothers and sisters. Now that's talking about go to your fellow Israelites, the other individual Israelites. But then when he says plead with your mother, that's kind of talking about the nation of Israel as a whole. Okay, so he's speaking to Israelites about Israelites and asking them to contend with their nation as a whole. Okay, so he's kind of pleading with them and telling them plead with your nation. Like, you know, it'd be like if somebody came to me and said like, you know, America, like, you know, plead with America to whatever it is that they're talking about. So that's kind of what happening is what's happening here. Um, so when he says, I have, will have no compassion on her children, the person he's talking about is the nation of Israel. And then the children are the individual citizens of Israel. So this is about Israel in every single way, in case there's any confusion. Um, so we see that God tells them to contend with their mother, which is like he's saying, plead with the nation of Israel because she's not living like she's united to God. So he's like, plead with your nation. You guys are not living like you're united to me. Um, so Israel is a harlot. She's been committing a spiritual adultery by worshiping other false gods. And then in verse 5, Israel says, I will go after my lovers who will give me my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So who are the lovers and how are they bringing her this? Well, the main one would be Baal. Baal was the god that they were looking to, the fertility god, the storm god, okay? And so you know that if somebody is like a fertility god or a storm god, he's the one bringing the crops, bringing all of the life and the growth. And so all of the food and the drink and the oil and the wine, that all comes from that, okay? So they're trusting Baal for that. So what, and we already know that the way that they worshipped him was pretty bad, right? Um, but what about what the worship actually meant? Um, we see in the original covenant that God promised that his part of the covenant, he promised a lot of things to them. I'm going to read a passage in Deuteronomy that just tells a little bit of the things that God promised. Um, it's Deuteronomy 7, 13 through 16, if you want to flip there, but you don't have to. Okay, so this is talking about God and what he is going to do for Israel in this covenant. It says, and he will love you and he will bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock, 
and the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will remove from you all sickness, and he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. So we see here in the covenant that they were given a long, long time ago, God promises to bless them by giving them fertile lands, fertile bodies. He said there's going to be no male or female barren among you or your livestock. He's, blessed, he's basically promising them full abundance, okay? So why do they feel the need to turn to Baal, a fertility god, when God has already promised that to them, okay? So either they don't believe that God can do what he promised, or they believe that, the, that Baal can provide better, okay? It's got to be one of those two things. Notice also in the passage I just read, God promised to kind of protect them from other nations and that they would always have victory in their wars when they were faithful to the covenant, one of the other kind of lovers in this section that Israel had turned to is they were making a lot of alliances with other nations, nations that they were originally probably told to like not be a part of and stuff because they were supposed to be set apart, right, with God or their king. Instead, they're turning to these other nations, forming these alliances and trusting, finding their security in these alliances with these other nations, okay? So God had promised all these things, but they're not looking to God for them. They're looking outside and they're looking at for the, to Baal and to these other nations, so basically what's happening is they were looking outside the covenant for what was supposed to be provided inside the covenant. Much like an adulterer looking outside a marriage for intimacy is looking outside of what's supposed to happen only within the marriage. So that's kind of why this whole idea of prostitution and harlotry comes out so repeatedly because that's really what's happening here. And that's why he says in verse 2 of this passage, she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Talking about God in Israel because she is not living as though God is um, her God. So what's the judgment? That was kind of some of the evidence laid out. What is the judgment here? Well, God said he's going to hedge her way with thorns and he's going to build a wall against her so that she can't find her paths. Now, that's basically what you would do with, like, a dumb animal who keeps wandering away and won't stay put or won't go where they're supposed to go. You would hedge their way with thorns, and so if they try to go where they're not supposed to, those thorns are going to poke them, and they're going to stop, you know? So that's kind of what he's saying here about Israel, is he's going to try to um, put barriers in the way of Israel seeking these other gods or these other nations and desert alliances. And think about how often that God does that really for us in our own life. I mean, how often does God put painful things in our life for the purpose of pointing us back to him. If you did the James study, you hopefully remember that suffering can be for our good and it can strengthen our relationship with God if we look at it the right way. And Israel had this habit of forgetting God in times of abundance and turning back to him in times of suffering. So God was going to hedge their way with thorns. He was going to make things difficult so that to try to pull them back to him, okay? That's what he's doing here. That's the judgment in verse 1, which is a pretty kind and generous judgment, right? Like, I mean, we see a lot harsher judgments coming, but at first the judgment is a kind one of trying to point them back to him, you know, by t removing the things that they're looking to. So that's the first cycle of evidence and judgment. Let's jump to the second cycle. We're going to read verses 7 through 13 now. And she will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but she will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. 
Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax, given to cover her nakedness, and then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all of her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all of her festal assemblies. And I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. And I will punish her for the days of the bales, when she used to offer sacrifices to them, and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry, and follow her lovers, so she forgot me, declares the Lord. So we see right off the bat that these barriers that God would put in place would not matter. It says immediately, and she will pursue her lovers. Okay, So these barriers are not stopping her. Um, And she's going to continue to seek the bales. She's going to continue to trust in these alliances. Um, And even though, you know, God was going to basically remove everything that they could offer. So they're looking to to these bales for fertility. God's going to take the fertility away. They're looking to these alliances for protection and security. God's going to take the protection and security away. He's going to remove what he's been doing all along. They've mistakenly believed that they were getting fertility from Baal. They were getting security from these alliances. When God removes them, they're going to continue doing the things that they were doing to worship Baal and realize that they're not getting what they thought they would get, right? They're not getting it anymore. Okay, so finally, when that happens long enough, they're going to turn back to God. But are they really repenting? Like, do we see heart repentance here? No. They say, well, like, I guess I'm going to go back to God. It was better for me then than now. Like, I mean, it's not, we are not seeing a heart repentance. We're not seeing them sorrowful. We're not seeing them um, wanting to have a relationship with God. They're just wanting what God can do for them and what God can give them, okay? Um, You know, in other words, they, they're kind of like saying, well, we used to trust God, and he did stuff for us. And so then we trusted these other gods because they did it better, but now they're not doing it anymore, so I guess we'll go back to God again. And so they're not really repenting. This is like a reluctant turn back to God. So what's the judgment? Does God forgive them and take them back with open arms again? No, that he's not going to accept that kind of a turn back, okay? He's not going to accept them reluctantly turning back to him, okay? Um, he doesn't give them all the blessings that they return to him for. Instead, he says, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax. Basically, I'm not going to give her what she came back to me for because her heart is still not with me. Let's look for a second before we say, well, is that fair? Like the God I know would always return, would always take him back. Let's look at Deuteronomy 28 um, and see some of the things that God clearly laid out in the covenant that were the stipulations. This is what would happen if Israel did not fulfill their end of the covenant. So you don't have to flip with me. Just try to listen. I'm I'm only going to read a few verses here. But I'm going to be in Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 15. Okay, this says, But it shall come about... If you will not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all of his commandments and his statutes with statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. In other words, making bread. Cursed shall be the offering of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Guys, this goes on and on. Like this is a very long passage of all of the things that are going to happen to Israel if they do not fulfill their end of the covenant. And so we see that, like, God had given them these promises of blessings, and he had given them the consequences of curses based on their obedience. 
And what we've noticed up till now is they didn't really seem to believe either one because they didn't believe the promises of his blessings because they felt the need to turn to Baal and to other nations. And they're not really believing the curses either because they think that God's just going to keep taking them back no matter what, even if they don't really love him and even if they're just kind of pursuing him for what he can do, okay? Um, so they didn't really believe God. They didn't trust he could provide. They didn't care about the cost of unfaithfulness. But they're about to really experience firsthand the consequences. They're going to experience firsthand that the curses indeed are true. If they didn't believe it then, they are about to believe it now. Okay? He's going to strip them of their false worship. He's going to strip them of all the blessings that they were looking for in that false worship. Okay, so that's kind of where we see in the text, um, in this section, it's symbolizing the end of the covenant, right? Let's see what happens in this third cycle here, okay? Because it's going to be a little bit different. So go ahead back to Hosea, and we're going to pick back in verse 14 of chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Baali. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names and no more. In that day, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. And it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, thou art my God. Yes, finally, some good news. This feels so much better, right? Look, let's like camp here for a while. Let's not miss some of the significance here, though, okay? Because up until now, we've had this cycle. We've had like evidence of the Israels, what they did, and then what God did in response. Evidence of what the Israel did, and then what God did in response. What was missing in this third section? The evidence. We didn't hear Israel do anything, right? It jumped straight into what God did. So these te- the two first sections of the poem describe the old covenant, and now the third section is foretelling of the new covenant, and based on nothing that Israel has done, we get this final, beautiful, and gracious judgment of God. Israel didn't deserve it. Israel didn't earn it. Just like we didn't earn salvation in Christ. It was given freely. And so it's not an accident that there was no action on Israel to provoke the coming of the third covenant. Does that make sense? Do you see how beautiful that is? It says that he's going to allure and take care of his people once again. Now remember, the Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant. It depended on Israel fulfilling their end of the deal, which they did not. The new covenant in Christ, though, is not conditional. God is going to love and take care of us if we are in Christ. So God initiates this covenant. It's not based on what we've done. God provides for us based on nothing we have done, and he responds in God's love. In in response to all of this, we don't hear from Israel to the very end when it says, and they will say, thou art my God. Okay, so in response, because God first loved us, we then look to God and love him, right? It's because he first loved us. So we see in these last couple of verses this complete reversal of all of the curses and all of the judgments from the first covenant. 
And we also see, again, marriage language. We just, we just saw divorce language. Now we're seeing marriage language. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and judgment. I will betroth you to me forever, okay? So we're seeing this initiation of this new covenant. Um, and the most incredible part, again, is we've done nothing to deserve it. All right, we're going to do the last chapter. I know this is a long, this is a lot, home stretch though. We're going to shift back to this second part of Hosea, Hosea part two, his personal life, okay? So chapter three. So remember, we're hearing the whole message summarized twice, once through the poem, once through his story, okay? So I'm going to read chapter three. This one's shorter. And we're going to hear what happened next to Hosea. <clears throat> then again, then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So also I will be towards you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Okay, guys, I'm about to drop a bomb on you. You might not like this, but it's good. This is good. This might shatter everything that you thought that you knew about Hosea going into the study. So you know how we're usually taught that Hosea goes and he buys back Gomer from this life of prostitution because she left him, right? Well, you might be shocked to know that not all scholars agree that this second woman was actually Gomer. Like, they don't. Some say it was, and some say this is a completely different woman. And hear me out. I'm going to tell you both camps, okay? Um, some scholars look at this because Gomer is never actually named. It doesn't say your wife. And so some scholars look at this and say, well, it has to be. Like, it has to be Gomer because otherwise the message of God's unfailing love for his people is lost. So a lot of translations have filled that in with the name Gomer or filled it in with some language to make it look more like it says your wife. Um, but really, like the original language, like, I mean, mine says, go love a woman who is loved by another man or go love a woman who is loved by your husband. It doesn't say... Go, go get back your wife or go love Gomer or, you know, continue to seek your wife or whatever. The language does not indicate in any way that this is Gomer, okay? So half of the scholars kind of say, most of the scholars, like, traditionally have said, well, it's got to be her because that is what feeds into the narrative of this. But the other half or the other portion of scholars, they say, now, it's a new woman because when God creates his new covenant, it's with a new Israel, okay? We just saw God divorce his people, and now he kind of says, I'm going to betroth you to me. And so now, no longer is the new covenant just with the 12 tribes and just with the people who are descended from the 12 tribes, but it's open to all who are in Christ. And so it's a new covenant for a new Israel, okay? So now, I mean, like, I did not see that coming when I was studying this. I was like, this, this totally destroys the romance novel. And so, you know, I can see the merit in both of these. I don't know which one is true. Um, well, one interpretation completely destroys the romance novel idea in the book. What's important to know is that neither of these interpretations change what the book is really trying to tell us. And that's the message of the Old and the New Covenant, okay? This isn't a story, a romance story about Hosea and Gomer. This is a story about an Old Covenant ending and a New Covenant starting. So whether or not the second person's Gomer or not, it doesn't really change that. But it is kind of fun to think about and to kind of think, which one do you think? I don't really know. So I wish that I had an actual answer, but I'm curious in our discussions to hear from all of you which one you, th you guys think it is. But All right, so whether this was Gomer or not, because we don't know, 
Let's look at some of the details that we're given here because there's still some more stuff in here that we want to make sure we don't miss. Um, we see that when he buys her, he, that she's not to be with other men anymore, which seems fair, right? Like, I mean, if, if a couple gets married, it seems pretty fair to say like, hey, I don't want you, you know, sleeping with other men anymore. That seems normal. Um, but then he also says, and I'm not going to sleep with you either. Okay, now that's when you're like, huh, well, that, that's kind of interesting because we know that it's not bad for a husband and wife to be intimate with each other. So why is that getting removed as well? Well, let's look at the parallel to Israel to answer that question, because it also says that about Israel as a whole, that they're going to dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. So basically, after this new co- the old covenant ends, there's a period of time where Israel is dwelling without all these things. So let's look at some of these things. Well, we know sacrifice or pillar, we kind of are getting two different things here. Sacrifice, that is something that God ordained. He created the sacrificial system, so that's orthodox. But then pillar, that's a part of pagan worship, okay? So we're seeing kind of godly orthodox practicing of worship like alongside pagan, okay? What about ephod and household gods? Well, ephod, again, was something that was something created by God. That was a part of how they were to worship him. But then household gods, obviously pagan, right? So what had happened is up to this point, Israel had kind of taken elements of how they were told to worship God a long, long time ago and slowly blended them more and more with Canaanite pagan worship to where it was almost like you couldn't really tell the difference. You couldn't differentiate the godly from the ungodly. You couldn't, like, it was so wrapped up with each other that you couldn't kind of use, like, do, like, the sacrifice without it being completely distorted, okay? So basically, God is saying, I'm going to have to remove it all. So during this period before the new covenant, there's a period of time where God is kind of removing a lot of this stuff, a lot of the ways that they worshiped because they had distorted it so much that it had to be removed. So this whole idea of, like, with, um, you know, him telling her, hey, you are not going to sleep with other men and not with me either, that's really just to illustrate what was happening with Israel, Okay, um, so then a period of time goes by, we know several hundred years, until finally we're told that the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now, the David their king part, that's a reference to the fact that Jesus is from the line of David, and there's a whole other covenant wrapped up in David here um, that we could go into a whole other lesson on, um, but we don't have time for that. And so it says basically... Israel is going to return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Guys, that part is describing us, okay? That's now. We're in the latter days. So, like, we're in the period of history after the new covenant is established in Christ. And just as Hosea bought an adulteress who was loved by another man and bought her out of prostitution, we were bought with the blood of Christ when we were still sinners, And you guys, seeing everything that happened in northern Israel, seeing all of their rebellion, all of their disobedience, how their hearts were constantly far from God, how they were not able over hundreds of years to keep a conditional covenant, our understanding of that should deepen our love for God so much and make the new covenant so much more incredible to us. Because as much as we want to think otherwise... We would have been no different if we were in a conditional covenant with God. If we did not have his spirit indwelling us and bringing forth fruit, we would be just like the Israelites. So when we understand what we would look like apart from this new covenant and the Holy Spirit indwelling us and God transforming us, we can see a picture of what that would look like in Israel. And it should just make us so much more grateful and just on our knees, just like unbelievable about what God has done for us, okay? So the more we can understand the old covenant, the more the new covenant should mean to us. And that's what I hope that we really get out of this tonight. So let me pray. 
Whew, God, that was a lot. And I just pray that um, as we start to discuss and then eventually leave here tonight, I pray that you would continue to be active in our minds and in our hearts, pointing us to the things and the truths that you want us to get out of tonight. I know all of us in here come from different places. We all are going through different things, and we all need different parts of your word right now. So whatever it is for each of us in here that we need to hear to be transformed, and to, whether it's to repent, whether it's to believe something more, whether it's just to rest in your love and your truth, I just pray that you would meet us all where we're at. Um, I pray that these discussions would be fruitful, and I pray that any questions that we have that have come up, that we'd be able to wrestle through them together, and that we would um, just be able to experience biblical community of just working out our salvation together as we talk through these truths, Lord. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.